0: Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Fritz Schrader, Senior Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Fritz.
1: Thank you, Brent. Great to be with you.
0: Well, our listeners uh, likely know your name given all the work you've done, your leadership at not only Johns Hopkins, but also Case more broadly. But specifically, Dan Frezza insisted that we, uh, you know, reach out and make sure to get You here on the podcast and credits you for really pushing him uh, in his own uh, career journey. So uh, grateful for your willingness to join us today.
1: Thanks. And I appreciate Dan's push. That's uh, very meaningful.
0: So love to better understand the higher education journey of the leaders in this field. And so uh, before we hit uh, uh, record officially here, you were just sharing uh, a little bit about attending uh, JMU. And so take me back to like, Junior year of high school, who was that guy? What was he into and what led you to JMU? Wow,
1: we're going to go back there. I'm going to try and make this quick then. Yep. Uh, so I I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, and my father was uh, dean of students at Carolina for pretty much his entire career. He worked at UNC for about 37, 38 years. Um, and so while I don't think I knew it at age you know, 16, 17, 18, or even 22, that academic culture, the, the university environment as sort of a comfortable imprinted culture starts very early on, you know, stories of being a little kid going to commencement at a Carolina because at the time my dad ran commencement as part of his dean of students responsibility. So, you know, those things I look back in my childhood and realize They were the sort of early building blocks of what is now obviously a multi-decade continued love affair with this environment and this this sector and what we do. Um, My mom happened to be executive director of the United Way. Again, when I look back, didn't think that what I was going to end up doing was sort of merging those two careers, Um, but you can certainly tie the threads of those two things together. I ended up going to JMU rather than going to Carolina. And I'm like, let,
0: let me yeah. just ask you though, because we typically uh, there's, there's like two paths here. There, there are leaders who accidentally got a job as a phone caller and fast forward. Now they're senior vice presidents of advancement. And then there's a handful of people that grew up, uh, you know, almost like a second generation fundraiser, if you will. Uh, David Bennett, for example, who leads advancement at Howard shared a story of, growing up on the Yukon campus and actually, uh, you know, going to those events with his dad. And I think he started as a student caller at the age of 16 or some kind of record-breaking level. And so when you think about, and also Dean of Students is a very, I mean, it's one thing to be sort of, uh, you know, on campus or in an academic family, but that's a very external public, I mean, probably quasi-celebrity status among, among the student body. And so Tell me more about just some of the most poignant, maybe memories of growing up with that backdrop.
1: Yeah, it's, um, and I would, I answer a question that you didn't necessarily ask, but it's an interesting segue. You know, I, I I have some of the same accidental moments as well. I, you know, my senior year in college, I ended up working in the annual fund office, not really knowing what it was. And I'll tell, I can get back to that story as to why it was an accident. So, I think I sort of split the difference between the two. There are clearly parts of my history that that make me a second generation, a third generation, whatever you want to label it, um, in the world of higher education. But there are also some accidental things that happened that made that pathway so much more accessible. Because had those accidental things not happened, I could have ended up trying to do 100 different things. And it was the it was the serendipity of those accidents that pushed me into and pulled me into this pathway. So... But I, you know i would I would say, looking back on really sort of early childhood, you, I, watching my dad in the university environment, you got an appreciation for a couple of really important things. Number one, and I the, I say these because I think they create the connection that I have today. What I love about higher education, what I love about the university and college environment is it's a community. It is literally an environment. It is an environment that isn't a nine to five, eight to five kind of role. I think when I look back all through my childhood at the times that my dad would come home for dinner and go back because there was an event on campus or the football games or, you know, going in and going to Granville Towers, which at the time was where a lot of the basketball team lived. And as a kid being, you know, so excited about being able to go to Granville Towers and get autographs from the UNC basketball players in the 70s and 80s and things like that. All of that is sort of illustrative of it's a community and it's a community that that serves the purpose of helping people advance themselves. Whether you're talking about 18 year old undergraduates or postdoctoral students in biochemistry, it's about advancing yourself and advancing the world as a result of that process. And it's the community that really was so powerful in that process. And I look back realizing there's so many parts of what I observed my dad doing that were about living in that community and being part of that community that speaks to kind of the way I think about that work today.
0: You also were there during some pretty epic basketball
1: years. Did you run into Michael Jordan? I mean, those were kind of peak, peak years. I I did. And, and uh, I can, so back then they played in, in Carmichael auditorium. It was before the Dean Dome. I'll spend the next hour doing Carolina basketball trivia. So you got to stop me on this. Um, but I can, back then Carmichael was maybe 8,000 people, 10,000 people. Um, and I went to games. I, uh, the, the coveted jobs, my, my best friends in high school, one's father was the tennis coach at Carolina. Another's uh, father was on the faculty in the medical school. The coveted jobs were wiping sweat on the floor or in the, in the aisle that went back to the locker room because the only scoreboard was above the court, the players had to look to the floor. We had a flipped scoreboard. And so a couple of times I would get pulled to flip the scoreboard. That's literally, was an old school flipped scoreboard. Those were the things that I remember that kind of imprinted, you know, the love for Carolina basketball very early on.
0: Well, I saw on your link, that explains the, I think you called it perspiration management engineer. No, just kidding. But uh, that's how we would reframe that job uh, in today's uh, resume, I think. You got it. Yeah, you got Uh, it. All right. So from perspiration management to uh, JMU, uh, tell me about the college experience. Did you love it? Was it okay? I mean, uh, what were some of the highlights?
1: Yeah, I I did love it. Um, I had a great time at at JMU and I went there. it's funny I was talking with a group yesterday about this this very choice. I went there number 1 because I decided back to your comment about the public facing role of dean of students. I needed to get out of Chapel Hill. It's very hard to be 18 years old going to school where your father is dean of students for all of the obvious reasons. Um and I looked at a lot of places in the mid-Atlantic and on the East Coast and and people make choices about where they go to college in a lot of different categories. I literally made the choice about JMU by sitting on the, there was a hill that was outside of the then dining hall. This is in the 80s. And during my tour, I sat there for two hours and listened to conversations, listened to the way people were talking to one another, the kinds of things they were talking about. So, you know, a pretty spring day maybe or or fall day. I don't know what it was, but sitting outside listening. And I thought this is where I belong. Um, And so it was the most non-academic selection process on my part, but it was really more about the community that I was going to join as a part of this journey. So Went to JMU and I, I love
0: those kind of poignant memories. And I actually recorded an episode with Ria Turtletop yesterday, and she had her own exact version of walking across Trinity College's campus and being in this walkway and seeing these students. It was it was amazing, and it also kind of has to drive you nuts when you think about. Okay, I got Zoom uh, animations going here when yeah. when you think about all of the work that goes into driving enrollment and improving yield and all of these things we talk about in the context of the the funnel and the revenue of the institution and then it's like yeah but also just sitting on a hill at the right time that it, could it, be
1: it, no it is it's funny i had breakfast with ria just before the holidays and and we've shared these stories back and forth a little bit so it's kind of funny um it, it is and it it I'm not labeling these as right or wrong. It's just each individual has to figure out what their decision criteria is. I knew for me that was going to be really important. So it's it's how I picked JMU, which in the mid 80s, you know, JMU today, in part because of some pretty dominant years in football and some changes divisionally they're making in NCAA, um, JMU is a really hot school and has been for about 10 years. In the 80s, I can remember going and looking at the statistics of admissions, I think I was... There were 10,000 undergraduates at JMU in the late 80s. I think I was one of maybe 30 people from North Carolina who were going to JMU. So totally different set of demographics and input back then compared to what it is now. And it's obviously bigger, significantly bigger. But but the the connection that I'll make is, as I said earlier, my senior year, I worked in the dining hall for three years and was tired of that. Uh, and landed an internship in the annual, a work study internship in the annual fund program, having no idea what I was doing or why I was there. But that was really the spark um, that started the whole process. My boss at the time was a guy named Ed Cardos, who was the director of annual giving, um, has been at VCU in Richmond for a long, long time. And he and I are still in touch. Um, And I worked for Ed and, and Brent, to your earlier comment, started out, you know, folding letters and licking envelopes and stamping direct mail and ended up um, working with Ed on their volunteer student phonathon and then they had a regional volunteer alumni phonathon and kind of cut my teeth on volunteer phonathons at JanU in the, the late 80s so it and that's the accidental piece right. that comes along with sort of this heavier history so one thing to stumble
0: into a work study program which by the way you know, and I know Case has done a lot of work around the graduate trainee program, and there are other things happening. But it strikes me that it it almost seems like those kinds, just in doing these interviews, like that kind of role, that kind of on wrap, that kind of opportunity was so common, and it, and it almost feels less common, even though the number one issue cited by leaders tends to be around building a talent pipeline, along with the donor pipeline. So. Maybe we can talk more about, you know, what you all are doing, if anything, that is kind of the 2024 version of that work study on ramp that, you know, was was pivotal in your in your career path. Um, That being said, it's one thing to do work study and sort of have the side hustle making a buck. It's another thing to decide, hey, actually, this could be a viable career path. And so when did that maybe uh, enter the conversation? Was it was it at that time?
1: Yeah, it's I can tell you exactly when it did, and it's again one of these fun memories that just stands out. Uh, in February of 1989, just to now let my age out of the out of the bag. Uh, February of '89, I was uh, selected as a student delegate to the Case District Three conference at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville. So, went there were two of us from JMU that went. Um, uh, Randy Blanchetti was the other, and Randy and I went with about I don't know, six or eight development staff from JMU down to Nashville, and we're at, you know, the District 3, three or four day conference, and uh, my my memory from that was the number of people as a student delegate that I got to meet who are were professionals in District 3 working in advancement, and, and you know, names flood back of people that I can remember having a cup of coffee with or a meeting, coming out of a session or what have you. And my takeaway from that was this sense of, my God, these people are so welcoming. They're so positive about what they're doing. And they are so encouraging of their work and and me as a student thinking about this work that it sort of lit this fire at that point to say, you know, I I actually have no idea what advancement is, but I think I could probably do it. Um, And so I set out then that spring of my senior year and wrote to probably a dozen vice presidents back in the days when... You know, we didn't have laptops ubiquitously across everywhere. You had to go to a computer lab, write a letter, mail it off kind of thing. Um, Wrote to about a dozen vice presidents in the mid-Atlantic, everywhere from Maryland down through the Carolinas to say, hey, here's who I am. Here's my resume. I'd love to come learn more about this field. And I had a Mazda RX-7, 1979 piece of junk Mazda RX-7. And I drove to Pennsylvania. I drove to Charleston, South Carolina, during my senior year to meet with any vice president who would write back and say sure if you can you know get on my calendar come see me um just to learn more about this field and that obviously then is what got me an opportunity to apply for the first job at university of maryland
0: i love it first of all i just looked up the 1979 mazda rx-7 i think that's a pretty sweet ride
1: it was. It was. I bought it used with like a hundred thousand miles from a friend, uh, and it was hanging on by a thread. But you know, when you're 22, it's a really sweet ride. But it it had no business driving from Pennsylvania to South Carolina. Let's just put it that way.
0: I love it, and so um, the fact that you went and, and did that uh, strikes me as being so obvious, yet so rare. Uh, I think today the kids would say, you got to shoot your shot. And I feel like that was you shooting your shot. But can I just ask how often you get notes like that today?
1: Well, so it's 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 a great question. And I get them not regularly, but I get them enough that um, one of the things that that everybody at Hopkins knows and, and anybody uh, who works closely in my office with me knows is because that was such an impactful moment in sort of the early stages of my career, literally anybody who writes to me and says, could I get 10 minutes of your time? My answer is always yes. Um, And, and there are certainly people, sometimes folks in my office who would say, is that really the best use of your time right now? Um, But I, I'm not going to back away from the fact that to your earlier point, we are in a talent crunch. We have been for decades. Talent pipeline is critical. And so to the extent that I am paying it backwards and paying it forwards to continue to try to help people figure out how to get into this path. Um, I feel very strongly about doing that. So I, I do get opportunities where people will write and say, Hey, what, how would I get into this? Um, and, and what's the path?
0: Well, I hope you get a couple of those after we publish this um, and, and hopefully they're, you know, mutually uh, mutually beneficial. And, uh, and so you send out those letters, you, you cruise around in the RX seven, uh, tell me more about what then inspired you to
1: uh, apply, maybe just at Maryland or elsewhere. Yeah, so Maryland was it was an opportunity. Um, in, in fairness, you know, I had a lot of good conversations with people. It, I, I think looking back in those months, there weren't that many entry-level jobs the way there are at a place like Hopkins today. Um, There weren't that many entry-level roles. And so when I, although I met with about a dozen vice presidents, it was mostly a lot of, here's what the job is. Here's how to do that. Here's how you might think about a graduate degree. Here's how you might think about the different roles in the late 80s that are starting to evolve. It was a very different time than it is today in terms of just the size and scale of our different teams. Um, The Maryland opportunity came about as a result of one of those visits. And I got a, a call um, from the director of annual giving at the University of Maryland, he said, "Look, we're looking for a phoneathon manager. I heard you had some experience in this. Do you want to apply?" And so I applied uh, at the university for the job and and got it. Um, and so graduated and started as phoneathon manager at College Park. And pursued your MBA. I did. Um, went back. You know, worked for a couple of years at heart because phoneathon for the first two years. I did a phone alarm. It was a night job, Sunday through Thursday night. Um, and so it wasn't until sort of year three that I thought, all right, I, I think I got a pathway here. Um, and let's take a look at a graduate degree. And so I did an MBA in marketing um, that felt complementary to you know our work and certainly to the work at the time that I was doing in annual giving. Um, but it was also just a, an opportunity, given Maryland's tuition coverage program, that I thought, oh. I, I'm silly not to do this.
0: But a lot of people have those tuition coverage programs and don't pursue it. I mean
1: Yeah, it's it you're right about that. And I look at this in a couple of different lenses. I I tend to think the following that that first, the critical thinking skills that are required as you move through this career, whether you are a gift officer or a vice president, are there. And the more you train yourself through education, whether it's formal degree pursuit or informal you know, self-growth kind of courses, the more you teach and train yourself, the better off you're going to be in those different moments. I happen to pursue a formal degree because it was available and it was interesting to me. Um, second part of this is we are, if you'll forgive the term, we're selling the concept of higher education externally to volunteers, to donors, to alumni, to friends. Um, Pursuing a degree is just our ability to, to showcase what we do. You know, I, I got a degree at Maryland because that was important to me. Um, it's interesting. I, I as a side note, and I'm sure you're going to want to pick up on this. My daughter uh, is a leadership gift officer at her alma mater, Boston College, and just is starting her MBA. Uh, for the very same reasons. Uh, She already has a master's degree and she figured I'm going to go back and get an MBA as well. And it's, I think it's, I think her obviously influenced by maybe some of our conversations, but she's thinking about it kind of in the same context as well. Yeah, I love it. And look, I,
0: I was uh, pursuing my MBA when I, when I actually decided to start um, Evertrue. And, and the reason was absolutely shaped by the curriculum and just getting exposure to Different themes. You know, I looked at it, I was like, oh, marketing is like alumni relations, and development is like sales, and stewardship is like customer success, except that's not how this sector is really being run, or it's not being optimized in the same way that the commercial sector is. And in spite of that, people are given $50 billion plus a year. What if we could make it look more like an integrated? revenue machine at a commercial organization, which again, some people even today would hear me say that or are listening and it makes them uncomfortable because maybe they thought they were getting into this sector to avoid sales. Um, and and it sounds like you're more aligned with what I just shared, but but I do feel like there's a general aversion of like, ooh, sales is bad. And you know what I always say is, look, sales is great. As long as you believe in it, it's a quality product, you can get behind it. It's easy to sell. Yep. It's bad when you feel like you're twisting somebody's arm to do something that you actually wouldn't do yourself. And that's where I feel like I love, I love doing sales in my work. I love being around development because I see the impact of higher education, but I also know that the difference between a hundred dollar gift and a million dollar bequest can often be the salesperson slash gift officer
1: doing that work. I I completely agree with you, and, and I have a pretty comfortable, even though I apologized earlier for using the word sales, I have a pretty comfortable relationship with the idea that in all that we're doing in advancement, we are behaving, we are acting very much like a for-profit sales organization would. There are just some basic things around portfolio management, around you know, um, outreach and the sales cycle and the solicitation cycle and and customer retention and all the things that you hear for profit world. I, I think a lot about so why are people uncomfortable with this blurring of sales and development? And look, I think one of the things is you have to sort of point to where where are the red lines in our world? One of the red lines that I'm gonna to point to is we generally don't want a donor to think they're buying something. That's not the right transactional framework for them. And so I think the sales question around that gets close to that red line in a way that makes people uncomfortable. I just acknowledge, hey, that is one red line that we want to be mindful of. You're not buying anything, you're investing. Totally different word, but, but there are other ways to frame it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the relationship between the two, but I equally recognize there are people in our world who just think they are, t- who get really offended if I ever use a sales reference when we're talking about our major gift officers, for example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like the more that we can package, the more we can connect the dollar value to outcomes, slash what you're buying, the better we are. You know, know, hey, here, like to endow a scholarship is X hundred thousand dollars. Here's why. Here's what we expect the distribution to be. How many kids do you want to help? Sort of selling somebody a a product with a different price point it's you know it's what are the add-ons you want when you when you buy the new car you know do you want those upgrades and we don't think about it that way but i feel like you know sometimes that frankly makes it much easier for the donors and obviously most proposals have specific amounts with specific you know messaging or there's option a or b and and that sort of thing
1: yeah, Brenna, I, I agree with you. I think, I think I would complicate it more by also saying, you know, we're in an interesting couple of years, but certainly an interesting last couple of six months. Meaning, the the world of donor influence, donor involvement on institutional direction, institutional decisions, expectations that donors, and, and I'm going to stay totally out of the political space for the moment. But expectations that donors have on the organizations in which they invest are changing um, in a way that I do think there's an added scrutiny to how development officers, how advancement leaders navigate and talk about what those boundaries of influence should be. And it's it could be unique to each institution or unique to each relationship, but I think that world has gotten far more Complicated over the last couple of years than it than than it has over the last couple of decades. So your yeah. your 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 analogy of upgrades, yeah, you know, is just another part of that.
0: Well, I mean, let's go there and see if we can avoid you know getting too political on it. But I I feel like there are a few people better positioned to speak to this because let's you know it's point of reference. It's January of 2024. Uh, everybody's seen what's happening in the Middle East. Everybody's seen what's happened in higher education, the fallout associated with it. And by the time this is published, something else will have happened that we don't even, you know, that we can't predict today. But let's rewind the clock a little bit because what we have seen for sure is this question of what level of influence, because donors are investors. Investors want to influence, but not control the organizations they invest in. And I just saw somebody yesterday say, look, these are basically we've had the activist investor, the activist donor investor. It's one thing to be a passive donor investor or a highly engaged donor investor, but we've seen activist donor investors. It was an interesting way to frame it. Now, you have been a part of the biggest gift in the history of higher education. And, and without getting like too, too specific or anything that you wouldn't be comfortable sharing, like you're a part of a $1.8 billion gift. And so if anybody on the planet might have, uh, I don't know, the right or a perceived right to be an activist investor, it would be Mike Bloomberg. How do you all think about whether it's at that level or other principal gift conversations, that spectrum from
1: influence to control, which is obviously being challenged right now? Yeah. I. So let me come at this a couple different ways. I think let me state a couple of things that I that I truly believe are very real about where we are right now, just in the world of philanthropy. I think the expectations donors have for transparency, for accountability in the sense of what do my dollars actually do at the institution, and to the notion of partnership, meaning I am investing my wealth, my money in your institution. And I want to feel like a partner as opposed to a transaction. I think all those things are very real. And I would, I would support they've increased over the last couple of decades in a in a significant way. And we could spend the next, you know, two hours sort of uncoupling the sociology and the, the psychiatry behind that, or the psychology behind it. But let's just accept that those things have increased. I think, um, you know, to use your reference to to Mike Bloomberg and to Bloomberg Philanthropies, their interest is about outcomes. Their interest is in what do we what happens at a place like Hopkins, to use the reference you pointed out, as a result of a $1.8 billion financial aid gift? What is changing in our ability to recruit students? What is changing in our ability to graduate students with less financial burden? What is changing in the ability to bring more underserved members of our community first generation college students who who should have the opportunity to come to a plus a conference their interest is in outcomes it is and so our partnership with them is really about making sure that we're supporting their ongoing engagement with us through pointing to outcomes and getting them um, comfortable with and aware of those outcomes it's not about micromanagement in any sense of the word um and i think that's you know, Mike, I, I'm biased, but I happen to believe he is one of our, our world's greatest philanthropists, just in the way that he, not just his capacity to do it, but the way that he seeks to have meaningful impact on so many parts of the world. Um, And, and I think we're experiencing through the lens that we have with the Bloomberg philanthropies, this notion of outcomes. Um, I, Now I'm going to pull away from the Bloomberg example more broadly to say, as i look across the tens of thousands of donors at hopkins whether they are 100 dollar donors or 10 million dollar donors or 100 million dollar donors outcomes is the is the real consistent thread in this for me so if you're a 10 dollar donor or a 100 dollar donor to hopkins do you feel like you've had some impact on something um and whether that's a collective impact or an individual impact is is not really that important and so that's where I think we are right now is this increasing expectation on the part of don- the donors and the donor organizations to feel yeah. like they are outcomes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's very different. I mean, I think that's the big challenge. I remember when I got started in the space, I heard such frustration from the annual fund leaders who would say things like we really need to grow that unrestricted annual fund, but people don't want to give to that. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. Like, A, you know, solicitation A, give 100 500, 1,000. Solicitation B, buy one book, five books, or 10 books for a student. I'm going to respond to solicitation B every day of the week, and that is way more work for those annual fund leaders. And But psychologically, I'm no different than Mike Bloomberg. The scale and the zeros are different, but I still want to know, am I throwing $500 into a general mission? Sure, I'll do that. But I really wish that I could like buy a kid a helmet that, you know, needed a helmet on the football team like the one that I wore.
1: Yep. I completely agree with you. And, you know, the, the analogy I use all the time is is Habitat for Humanity, which, you know, in yeah. my experience earlier on, does a great job of saying, hey, your $4 just bought a 2 by 4 your, totally. your $10 bought a piece of T111. And and we in higher education don't know how to translate that way. I, it's hard to tell you what $2 buys at Johns Hopkins University. It really yeah. is. And that's the big challenge.
0: So one interesting way to think about impact as well is what if we hadn't gotten the gift? And so if you hadn't raised that last gift uh, in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropies, what wouldn't have happened in the last five years?
1: So. And that's a it's a great question. It's a it's a really easy way for us to think about this. So I you know I want to give our president Ron Daniels, President Daniels, all the credit in the world for thinking. In, in fact, not, I'm not even giving him credit. He led this charge with with Mike and with Bloomberg Philanthropies to figure out how can we have meaningful impact on the pathway to a place like Hopkins. If you accept that Hopkins you know it is a world class institution not even playing the rankings game but just is a world class institution that is extraordinary in so many different levels and if you accept the fact that any student who can do the work at hopkins should have some level of opportunity to come to hopkins or a place like hopkins what we know is that the the way that financial aid model was built and as a side note what i will say is um, one of the things that I learned out of the process in working with the Bloomberg Philanthropies is the the expectation around transparency. If you go to any institution and say, "How do you make financial aid decisions?" I mean, it is a it's a it's a black box of detail and and formulas that is very hard to translate to the outside world. To get a donor to invest in financial aid, you have to be able to say, "Here's the, how those decisions get made," and here's where philanthropy, here's where an investment could fundamentally alter our ability to make those decisions for students. So now go back to your question. What we know is the number of students at Hopkins that were graduating with significant debt, the number of students who were not able to afford Hopkins, and therefore we had to make admissions decisions and not be permanently need blind in the way we were making those admissions decisions, We were very much aware of all of those factors coming in. What is it now? Seven years later, six years later after the gift, we can point to the elimination of debt as a part of the financial aid strategy for our students. No students now come to Hopkins with packaged federal debt as a part of their financial aid strategy. We can point to the number, the increasing number. It's now almost at 30% of our students who are first-generation or underserved populations who are coming to Hopkins that's up from you know 14 15 16% prior to the gift so to answer your question what i know is we wouldn't be able to serve that number of first generation underprivileged background students if it weren't for this gift yeah. uh, and that's that's fundamental to who we are i love it i i was a first gen
0: student from a very rural part of iowa when i attended brown and had unbelievable financial aid and there was just this confusion almost among my peers when i when i said i was attending there because they would google what it costs compared to uh you know other local uh, even public institutions for example and they couldn't comprehend how we might be able to afford it and and what i was trying to explain is it's actually going to be far more affordable for me than any of the local options yet that is not the narrative, especially given all of the headlines and the pressure being put on higher education, people questioning the value of higher education. What you just shared and what I just shared is nowhere in the conversation. It is only the negative. And, and it's almost like all the public Twitter sphere narrative would be all Johns Hopkins has done is saddle students with debt that they'll never pay off. And it's like false, yep. objectively, with data why don't people believe that
1: yeah Uh, well look again we could spend the next three hours doing a whole what do people believe today and what do they trust it's i don't know if you saw it there was an article a couple days ago i think it was december 30th in forbes about trust in higher education and contextualizing sort of trust in higher education and and i'll only brag about hopkins just for a moment because the this drumbeat of trust in higher education is at an all-time decline the forbes article is basically pointing out trust in institutions globally across the country is at an all-time decline. Higher education is actually at the very top of institutions that are trusted. It has declined, don't get me wrong, but not to the extent that trust in government, trust in our political systems and other pieces have declined. Um, And Hopkins is amongst the most trusted institutions in the higher education space right now, which we're incredibly proud of. It's It's a very privileged and fragile place to be, but we're very proud of that fact. And I think to your point, this commitment to being transparent about what are we doing in terms of opening the doors to populations that haven't had access to Hopkins education in the past, is underscores that.
0: So, you know, most leaders right now, it's the beginning of 2024, maybe it's a different calendar for the advancement sector, but in my world, it's been a lot of uh, planning and goal setting for the year. And okay. one of the ways we do that is we try to identify the biggest issues, right, the most important issues and challenges and problems prioritize them and then attack those issues in order of priority with clear ownership. And so you could imagine something like as a university president, number one issue right now, declining trust in higher education, and maybe for folks that aren't in your position, declining trust in insert university, right? Insert college. Based on what is working at Hopkins, do you have any recommendations or themes That if that is an issue, if you're hearing it or seeing it in enrollment numbers or you're hearing that feedback from uh, gift officers out in the field that are hearing objections from donors, if trust declining is a big issue, what might be some strategies or tactics to think about turning that around? It's a big question. No worries if nothing comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I mean look, I want to be really really mindful of the role that I play versus the role of other people in educational institutions. You know, the the, the provost, our deans, our president would be far better equipped to respond to this kind of question. So I
0: but, I, but if donors don't believe they don't feel the trust, you're not raising the money. Yep.
1: yep. No, I I I agree and I think my so my answer using my advancement role is the following. I think some of this requires us to unpack what trust means. Like what what is underneath the declining trust? Is it a perception of the value of higher education compared to the cost of higher education? Is trust about my institution reflecting your values, your personal, political, societal values? Is it about a reflection of that? Is it about transparency in what we do as an institution, or is it a blend of all kinds of things? And, I, and the reason I, I separate all those kinds of things is because I think some of those are addressable. Our our ability, I just actually had a, a call with a, an alum this morning who we're getting to know, and, and we were talking about what Hopkins is doing in the city of Baltimore. And I think one of the responsibilities we have is to be very transparent about how are we as an, as an institution, as an incredible and important anchor institution in the city of Baltimore, what are we doing to try and support our city more broadly and being totally candid about what those answers are? Some of that trust is just about transparency. And as our institutions get big and complicated, it's just harder to be as transparent as we should. So our responsibility as an advancement leader is to try to approach those conversations with every ounce of information we can to be transparent about it. I think um, you know the first point I'm, I'm going to touch, and then quickly run away from, which is this question of value of education compared to price tag of education is such a complicated set of questions for us societally as a sector. Um, you know, there's not a there's not a cocktail party on weekends with friends that someone doesn't say, "Why, why is it so expensive?" And I, I have all of my answers that I've built up over time. And look, I acknowledge we are at a point where we're not going to be too far out in the next decade when selective institutions like Hopkins and Brown cross the $100,000 threshold of total cost of attendance. And the question really is, for me, we are a labor-intensive product, right? Our biggest expense as an institution is our faculty and our staff who deliver the product to our students. We are also a real estate-intensive product. Enterprise those two things are just more expensive every year and so you know the, we could we could have every one of the top 50 institutions reset their tuition at 50 percent of what it is today but in another 20 years we're going to have the exact same conversation because at three or four percent inflation those things are just going to continue to tick up so it's not as if we aren't going to cross the hundred thousand dollar threshold at some point you can delay it but um I I think I think it's such a complicated question around how you get people comfortable. And you touched on this, and I'll stop, Brent. You touched on this a minute ago. Actual cost of attendance versus sticker price are two different things. And the way we, our path is about how do you make the education at Hopkins accessible to as many people as possible through financial aid? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look. If I were if I were reframing this, and I, I don't know the answer to this question, I might go track it down. I think what you would say is, look, this is um, if you think about like retail, okay? Let's say big box retail versus digitally native consumer brands, right? You had uh, J Crew, and then Bonobo started natively, uh, you know, e commerce. You you had uh, J C JCPenney over here. You know, you had Amazon um, over here and clearly in the retail world, traditional retailers have either gone out of business like Blockbuster or they've been able to lean into e-commerce and in some cases become stronger than ever. Walmart is now 15 percent of their revenue via online while still maintaining a labor intensive, big physical retail footprint. And I think that's the big question for higher education is what is. Johns Hopkins online sales as a percent of revenue, if you were going to frame it that way today, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, and are there ways that we can leverage the physical footprint, the, the, uh, academic curriculum, the knowledge to scale much more efficient, uh, access points that are maybe fully online hybrid. There's a lot of work. That's not my specialty, but it just feels like that. You know that is the way it's played out in in traditional retail, probably more inherent stickiness given the brands and the prestige, especially within within the top ranked institutions. Um, but we haven't really seen that fully play out in higher ed yet.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean I would only add um, one important component to this conversation, which um, I feel really strongly about this. I have no idea how to mount this in a, in a meaningful way. Part of what we offer as an institution and in higher education broadly is yes, the content of the of the scholarship, the content of the pedagogy and the and the curriculum. But part of what we also offer is the experience of growing as an individual. And our belief is that experience is a residentially based, you know, for the undergraduates, four-year program, for the graduate students, three, five, seven, doesn't matter. But that there is something about the experience that is equally important to the curriculum that you're receiving in the classroom. And And yeah, I think right now it feels, it feels probably more
0: binary than it will be 10 years from now, because it feels like you're all in four years, residential, et cetera. Or there's this like digital certificate thing and you don't build any kind of relationships. And I think the in-between, which is where, you know, clearly there, there have been. Uh, I think executive education is an interesting example where it's you know it's more of a mix. There's still relationship, there's in person experience, um, but but it can be delivered you know with with maybe you know some efficiencies. So I don't know. It's 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 going to play out one way or another, and and I think in the meantime you know hopefully uh, there will be opportunities for philanthropy to both grow access scale access to the existing life-changing four-year experience you just said while also philanthropy can you know fund new models and new concepts that you know maybe can can allow even even greater scale and access more broadly agreed. yeah agreed early in your career you wrote annual giving a practical approach like how do you decide at that juncture to write a book period and any reflections on doing so i imagine it was uh, a lot of work but it probably led to a bunch of conversations and relationships
1: yeah it's um it's funny that was twenty plus years ago. um it it came about because I had been um asked to write a couple chapters for other compilation books around ed fundraising on annual giving um and uh was doing the work on a chapter thinking, all right, where do I draw from? like how do I how do I see what else has been written out there and how do I then try and make it modern? And there wasn't much this was you know, late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't much that had been updated in terms of just annual giving guidance. Um, and so I wrote a chapter for a, a, one other person's book that they were putting together. And then I thought, well, all right, this is kind of fun to write this chapter. Let me just see what happens if I keep writing. And so I kept writing and then thought, well, geez, I've written enough that there's something here. And so started to organize a little bit more. I, I had these memories of sitting My kids were young. My kids were like two, three, four at the time, sitting at night, like in the, you know, the back study of of our house, typing, trying to figure out, you know, once you get started on this, you're really burdened by, I I can only imagine what it's like to be an actual, you know, uh, career writer who is under the deadline and under the requirement to keep writing because you really do, um, you really do have to work at it. in hindsight, what I my take away from that, that I still think serves me well, but is a big part of the way I think about things, writing that book forced me to think about, okay, how do you actually teach what we do? How do you organize in an accessible way the different parts of the business of annual giving from programmatic structures to segmentation strategies to all those pieces? And the reason you know, what I may have done back then, Dan Allenby has updated 20 different times and does a much better job than I do. But what I take away from that is it is led to what is something that's very important to me right now, which is how do you organize the mechanics of what we do in a way that's accessible to someone? And I have done some work through case on a curriculum project to try to get our arms around what are the basic competencies that are required to do this work? And how do you Beyond the apprenticeship model, which is kind of what we have, how do you teach this and how do you hand on this profession to back to where you started some of these conversations, sort of the pipeline of people who want to come into it now in a way that's not just based on the apprenticeship model? Yeah, I uh, I love it. I, I am
0: a future author, Fritz, so I always like asking those questions and um, I recognize we're kind of wrapping on time here. So let me just give you maybe two last uh, quick points here. One, do you have any trips, just trips, visits that stand out as being particularly memorable? Or if you're at the cocktail party and somebody says, hey, you ever have any just visits go wrong
1: or really right? Like anything really stand out? Oh, sure. I mean, I can, I, yes, I can. (laughs) I've got, when I do a lot of Teaching at, at conferences and such, uh, leading sessions. I've got loads of stories, mostly ones that went wrong. I mean, I can remember like it was yesterday. Really, one of the very early when I was at Maryland, uh, I'd moved out of the Funathon into a leadership annual giving role, and was at a dinner uh, with a couple in New York. And I can remember coming into the house with a colleague of mine who was also in annual giving. Clearly, they hadn't remembered they'd invited us to dinner. They had three kids. Um, we sort of hastily sat down at a table. I had, I, you know, I was in a suit cause that's what you did. I, I can remember the kids, you know, with food covered hands all over me and my suit and all this, I'm holding a bait and and thinking to myself, I'm not sure this is how this is supposed to go. Like I don't know where you ask for a thousand dollars in the middle of kind of this chaos. So I have that, I have, you know, stories of solicitations that I've done in restaurants for a million dollars that just went horribly wrong solicitations where, I was supposed to meet a donor. They didn't show up. I moved to another site, finally caught up with them. And um, the pressure of the ask in that moment and feeling like I can't leave this visit without making a solicitation. So I've, yeah, I've got lots of those. I also have equally ones where they're just joyous. I mean, they are just this amazing moment of seeing. I'm thinking of one in particular with a donor to our School of Arts and Sciences who. You see the the excitement around a topic and the ability to influence through their philanthropy a topic like philosophy or physics. And it's just, it's just joyous. It's fun. I love it. I love it. Okay, last
0: one. Uh, tell me about some of your mentors. There we go. And then uh, tell me about your team. Are you hiring? And if people want to get in touch.
1: So, you know, mentors, I... I could go on for an hour about these. I have had some terrific bosses, mentors over the years who um, from Bob Lingren, who first hired me at Hopkins when he was VP to Mike Iker, who's now out at Ohio state to Charlie Flager, who's at Virginia tech um, without going on story after story, but each of them both encouraged me at the right moment and gave me enough runway to, to run but also gave me some of the really tough lessons of moments where they provided criticism to me that felt like a two by four to the back of the head. And I look back and think, God, there those those was were such important conversations because I would have missed something that was um, weak or vulnerable in the way I was approaching something that they delivered it perfectly and, and gently, but firmly um, in a really impactful way. So, you know, those are mentors. Rhea, as you referenced her earlier, is a mentor because we just kind of we both worked for Mike Iker. We've both kind of grown up in this profession and we share a lot of the same passions and ideas and concerns. Um, so lots of of mentors. In terms of my team um, at Hopkins, and we've just gone through some reorganizations and some moving around of people. So I've been at Hopkins 20 going on 28 years. Um, which is an extraordinary long period of time to be at one place. And I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, I have, I actually had dinner last night with my executive team, which is you know about 12 people. Um, and, and it was a celebration just at the end of the year. Um, I am so proud of the work they do. We are constantly hiring like any organization, you know, we're 500 plus people. We're constantly hiring, but we've done so much to build, To your earlier point, this pipeline of talent that that I hope comes to Hopkins, we have a program called Origins, which is bringing interns to us in the summer from underserved institutions across the country who can learn at Hopkins, which we think of as kind of this big machinery of development and and advancement apparatus. Um, So there's so many programs that we've built, and I'm just incredibly proud of the team and grateful for the team's work here. I love it.
0: Thank you so much. I was looking forward to the conversation and uh, to learn more about your your work. And uh, I look forward to uh, future, you know, future discussions and would encourage everybody listening, you know, track Fritz down on LinkedIn, shoot him a note, uh, let him know that you you heard uh, this episode. And, and I hope you get, like I said, a couple of those professional inquiries, but the right amount so that it doesn't uh, blow up your calendar for the rest of the year. Okay.
1: Hey, thanks, Brendan. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to spend time with you. Thanks for what you're doing with this podcast uh, and just your own curiosity about this field and the work that we do. So thank you.
0: It's been the best learning experience uh, that that I never could have imagined. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for it. So with that, everybody, I'm going to wrap today's episode featuring Fritz Schrader, who serves as Senior Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at Johns Hopkins University. Take care, everybody.